Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for this podcast, the 28th episode of the Primate Cast, is Monday, September 22nd, 2014. And we are going to present to you the fourth installment of our five part series from our coverage of the Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam between August 11th and 16th of this year. Now, before getting into the interviews that we'll present in this podcast, there are five of them, I just want, as a primatologist myself, to talk a little bit about a recent field trip that I did. So, I and a graduate student shipped off to study, to census and sample from the primate community inhabiting the banks of the Kinabatangan River, uh, locally known as the Sungai Kinabatangan, which is in the Malaysian Borneo state of Sabah. And for anyone who knows the area will know that it's a fantastic place rife with biodiversity um, and including primate biodiversity with up to let's say 10 to 12 species inhabiting the area and so it's really a fantastic place to do some good primate watching now it for me it's one of those places that always reinvigorates my passion for doing just that and reminds me of why i got into this field in the beginning but at the same time it's also a place where conservation issues are extremely important Um, you have Of course, in Borneo, everybody knows the issues in Malaysia and also Indonesia, um, the issues surrounding the oil palm plantations, their growth and complete devastation or annihilation even of the forests around there. And so along the banks of the Kinabatangan River, um, this is is no exception. You have what is probably good functional in most cases, uh, riparian forest corridors. So as you're cruising up and down the river, you do see forests on all sides. But unfortunately, if you look a little bit beyond into the interior, often on the ridges or sometimes even little fronds of these oil palms poking uh, into lap at the very uh, waves of the river itself. But so this is very clear in your mind. And so for anybody who hasn't yet done so, the last podcast, which happened to come out while I was conducting this work, uh, is about conservation. So many of these issues, not so much in Asia, but particularly in Africa, but many of the concepts still apply. So do check that out, podcast number 27, uh, which was the third installment from our IPS coverage. Now, of course, when people think of Borneo, you you probably think of the iconic species, the Borean orangutan, uh, which is present in high numbers uh, along the banks of the Kinabatangan. And by the way, our second interview in this very podcast with Dr. Cheryl Knott will be about the Borneo orangutan, um, albeit from the Indonesian part of Borneo. But there's also that delightful resident, the proboscis monkey. And perhaps a little known fact about the proboscis monkey, last year, there was an online poll conducted by the Ugly Animal Preservation Society. Uh, It's a group that kind of takes a comedic, I suppose, approach to conservation of endangered species. But they had this poll to to elect a mascot for their cause, uh, which is to raise awareness for some of the less charismatic or at least physically attractive animals out there uh, who are no less deserving of of our concern. Now, the animal that topped that list happens to be the blobfish. And for anyone who is unfamiliar with the blobfish, please press pause now and Google it immediately. You will not be disappointed. But also featuring quite highly on that list of ugly animals was our very own proboscis monkey, uh, to the chagrin of all primatologists, I'm sure. While we may not agree with the result of that poll, we will certainly agree with the fact that proboscis monkeys, an endangered species, are in need of our conservation uh, and generating awareness 
uh, about their cause and other animals' causes as well can't do any harm. And so the president of the society, uh, Simon Watt, had this to say in an article that came out in The Guardian last year. I'll quote, We've needed an ugly face for endangered animals for a long time. For too long, the cute and fluffy animals have taken the limelight. But now the blobfish will be a voice for the mingers who always get forgotten. No doubt a gem of wisdom there. And with that, I'd like to move into our interviews uh, in this segment. And so we're going to be joined by five well-known researchers who will share their respective and collective works and ideas in the field of primatology. And so these interviews are going to include Dr. Augustine Fuentes, Dr. Cheryl Knott, Dr. Elisabetta Wieselbergi, Dr. James Hyam, and finally, Dr. Joanna Setchell. So in our first interview, we're joined by Dr. Augustine Fuentes, who's professor and chair in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame. Now, Dr. Fuentes is a very well-published and, as a result, well-known anthropologist and primatologist more specifically. He's done a lot to advance the field of primatology, as we'll hear about later. Um, but he's also a great science communicator, and this is evidenced by his interview, which we'll get to in a second, but also by the numerous books he's authored, edited, co-edited, um, both textbooks for anthropology, human evolution, primatology, um, but also some popular books, including his work as a mythbuster currently, um, tackling our notions of human nature and how they can be used to explain, sometimes inappropriately, human behavior that we observe. Now, I first met Dr. Fuentes about 15 years ago when I joined his field school. Uh, when he was with Central Washington University, they put on a field school called the Balinese Macaque Project, uh, which was in collaboration with the University of Guam and I believe a local university in Bali, Indonesia, uh, Denpasar, in Denpasar, I believe it was uh, Udayana University. And so this field school was designed to introduce students to the study um, observation of temple macaques, so long-tailed macaques that have these long-lasting associations with temple complexes, and their interaction with humans, um, particularly with tourists, because the site at which we we were were researching uh, was the Padangtagal Monkey Forest, and there was a very very strong ecotourism project going on there, where. So many people were coming from around the world uh, to see the monkeys and interact with them uh, in various ways, sometimes, well, usually in negative ways, of course, as we don't typically encourage interaction between humans, particularly tourists and uh, local primates. But anyway, so that field school was about behavior and observation and ecology and the human-macaque interface, for which Dr. Fuentes has become quite well-renowned. And in this interview, he's going to be talking about a field which he was instrumental in developing called ethnoprimatology. And so at the beginning of the interview, he's going to start by explaining um, this idea and how it came about and, of course, its relevance to the field of primatology. The whole point of uh, introducing, let's say, a, a novel approach in, in primate studies is, is to reflect what's going on in the world. Um, there are a number of people who've been doing ethnoprimatology who may not even realize it. That is, mixing together methods from primatological, ecological, social anthropological, ethnographic methodologies and approaches and trying to ask really integrated questions about primates, including humans. One of the biggest problems that has plagued primatology since it, it began as, as a field of study has been the idea that uh, humans 
are separate from other primates, that there's a human world and there's a natural world. And in fact, uh, it was long held that the best data on non-human primates comes from areas where they're as far away from humans as possible. Now, there's a number of problems with that. I'll just lay out a few and suggest why ethnoprimatology might be some good ways to sort of ameliorate those problems. Um, One of the main problems is that that most primates live in primate communities. It's it's not that common for single species of primates to occur. And in fact, uh, throughout history, uh, in an evolutionary sense, um, there's usually multiple species of primates in communities, and they're often humans making up one of those species. And so humans and other primates have coexisted for, for long periods of time in many, many different contexts in the range of, of the non-human primates. So, so humans and other primates form communities. And in that context, if you're doing good ecology or good behavioral ecological study, you have to include all of the salient aspects of those ecologies. And it is obvious, or at least should be obvious to everyone, that humans are a very salient component of the ecology. Another thing that an ethnoprimatological approach helps us understand is the increasing... Uh, massive habitat manipulation by humans. Uh, Humans uh, do really well uh, by modifying the world to better suit their needs. And as they do that, they create cascade effects in local ecologies affecting all of the other participants, all the other fauna and flora in those ecologies. And when this happens with other primates, uh, there's some particularly interesting impacts. And so understanding human cultural patterns, human ecological patterns, and why humans do what they do can tell us a lot about the ecosystems of other primates. And it is very likely, and there's some pretty good evidence to support this, that many other primates have, over evolutionary time, adapted to the particular patterns of the humans that are their co-ecological partners. So humans are part of the ecology, so if we're interested in other primates, we've got to understand the human impacts in that sense. But the third thing is that there are many areas where uh, humans and other primates actually interact behaviorally, physiologically, uh, and they share ecologies, even co-construct ecologies, or particularly pathogen ecologies. So uh, the relationship between humans and other primates is not just about predation or competition. Uh, there's a whole wide array of these kinds of relationships. And ethnoprimatological approaches, approaches that ask us about human culture, human ecology, and human behavior, while asking about primate behavior, primate ecology, and the interfaces between the humans and other primates, that kind of approach is going to give us a broader, richer data set and allow us to uh, ask better questions and maybe even get better answers. So it's certainly a truism that these um, so-called pristine areas that haven't really seen um, too much modification by human hands uh, are getting fewer and farther between. Uh, and as Dr. Fuentes mentioned, m- many cases may never have existed at all in the first place. And so ethnoprimatology does seem like an appropriate approach um, or framework through, through which to think about doing research on primates. But we wanted to get kind of an idea maybe more practically about what that would look like on the ground. I mean, how we do ethnoprimatology in practice. So methodologically, there's a uh, sort of large jumbled bag of uh, skill sets that are used. Um, uh, a number of us uh, who are, are active in this area are developing sort of uh, different kinds of methodologies and, and trying to get those into print so that people can use them. Uh, right now, the most uh, ethnoprimatological studies are, or the best at least, are done with teams. That is, uh, primatologists, ethnographers, ecologists, geographers, economists, working together to sort of develop multi disciplinary uh, interfaces and and trying to describe that. So it's really bringing together multiple toolkits. But at a very base level, the main toolkits are behavioral ecology, ethnography, uh, and some sort of more complex ecological approaches. 
This becomes incredibly important when we think about conservation as well. So for anybody who's interested in following this up, this idea of conservation and management and the role of ethnoprimatology in these areas, um, do check out a couple of books that Dr. Fuentes has co-edited. The first from 2002, which is called Primates Face-to-Face, The Conservation Implications of Human and Non-Human Primate Interconnections, co-edited with uh, Linda Wolf. And then also in 2000, where are we, and 11 here, uh, a book called Monkeys on the Edge, Ecology and Management of Long-Tailed Macaques and Their Interface with Humans. But in the final segment of this interview, I kind of wanted to switch gears here because I was informed a little while ago that Dr. Fuentes is involved heavily in a new project. And this new project is the development of the International Encyclopedia of Primatology, which is going to be exactly as it sounds, an encyclopedia of concepts within the field of primatology, specific to, to primatologists, students of primatology, and practitioners as well. And so I myself was asked to create an entry for this, which I admitted to Dr. Fuentes is a very daunting thing. Um, I was both extremely honored and mortified at the idea of having to write an entry for an encyclopedia, which is not Wikipedia. Um, and so I wanted to hear a little bit more about how this came about. And so to end this interview, we're going to hear about the International Encyclopedia of Primatology. One of the things that I'm doing recently is I am the senior editor on the uh, International Encyclopedia of Primatology that we're putting together now. It's a multi-year project. There are 14 associate editors and uh, nearly 300 contributors to over 600 entries. Why would anyone want to do this? Well, there's actually a good reason, because in a world of rapidly expanding knowledge, uh, data, and interpretations uh, relative to this incredibly broad thing we call primatology, having a ease of access in electronic format to not just summaries of, of the main arguments, ideas, terms, uh, histories, and people in primatology, but also having quick reference lists and having that digitally cross-linked and easily accessible is going to give a whole new toolkit to students and practitioners alike. So, you know, in a few years when this thing pans out, if it works as we hope it does, uh, there should be an incredible new encyclopedic context for rapid primatological knowledge generation. So that was Dr. Augustine Fuentes telling us about ethnoprimatology and the somewhat unrelated work, the International Encyclopedia of Primatology, although expect to see featured quite prominently an entry devoted or multiple entries devoted to the field of ethnoprimatology in that volume of work. Now, in our next interview from the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society that was held in Hanoi, Vietnam, we're going to be joined by Dr. Cheryl Knott. Now, as I mentioned a bit earlier, she will be talking about her work with the Bornean orangutans, but Dr. Knott is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Boston University, as well as the Director of the Gunung Palung Orangutan Project, which is dedicated both to the study and conservation of orangutans in Borneo, um, and as I mentioned, in Indonesian Borneo. So, Dr. Nod is going to be telling us about her long-term work, uh, which she established a couple of decades ago now, I guess it was, with these Borean orangutans, and her focus specifically on energy, balance, physiology, and behavior um, of orangutans. And one of the things that Dr. Nod is really known for was her early establishment of methodologies to assess the physiological status of animals, primates in the wild, which up until the mid-90s really had not been had not been done. And so that has really had a long-lasting impact in the field of primatology. So here's Dr. Knott 
talking about her work in this context. So I've been studying wild orangutans since 1992 in Gudampalo National Park. And I first went out there when I was a graduate student at Harvard University for my PhD. And essentially my, my main kind of overriding uh, project aim is to understand how changes in the forest, the changes in ecology, how that affects orangutan behavior and physiology and evolution. And so my, my initial project was looking at um, orangutan interbirth intervals and reproduction. So they have the longest birth interval of any mammal. So they only give birth once every you know, six to eight years. And so what I did at that time was I developed a method to collect urine to um, analyze hormones in the wild, because at that time, no one actually was um, really doing that in wild primates. Um, So I developed this method of drawing urine on filter paper, because one of the limitations was we didn't have a freezer. Now, now we actually, it's easier to get a freezer out there, but anyway, we developed this method of drawing urine on filter paper, and then bringing it back to the lab where we can analyze the hormones in urine. And what I discovered was that in Borneo, especially, but also other Southeast Asian rainforests, they have very dramatic fluctuations in fruit availability, uh, called mass fruiting, which happens about every four years or so. And um, that's you know these big fluctuations in fruit are really important for orangutan you know behavior and reproduction. So when their fruit is higher, their hormones increase, and they're more likely to get pregnant during those those periods. And that. This is a similar mechanism as what happens in humans, is in women, um, is that hormones are tracking what's called energy balance. And so if you're losing weight, your hormones go down, you're less likely to get pregnant, and if your hormones increase, you're more likely to get pregnant. So as Dr. Knott is about to explain, her work has really focused on energy balance and its relationship to orangutan behavioral ecology, reproduction, physiology, and so on. And so we asked Dr. Knott to elaborate a little bit on these methodologies and some of the insights that have been gained through their employment. Yeah, so energy expenditures and energy intake is um, in a big part of my work, is, is developing methods for that. So. Initially, the methods, um, I use several different methods. So one of the methods is um, what's called the computational method. So in terms of energy expenditure, we measure, you know, we basically record everything, all their activity and how much time they spend in each activity. And then um, there are kind of standard values you can assign so that if you're, you know, traveling, if you're sitting, if you're hanging, so we look at the activity and the body position, and then we assign a energetic number to that. And then, so let's say you spend, you know, 200 minutes, in a, you know, in a certain position, then that has a certain energetic value. So you can calculate, you can kind of compute mathematically the estimate of energy expenditure. Um, but of course, that's you know an estimate. Um, so then we have been developing other methods to use uh, more sort of physiology to do it. And one of the first methods I used was ketones. And so ketones are produced in urine when you are metabolizing your own fat deposits. So we actually, that one of my first papers um, in 1998 was on that and showing how during this mass fruitings, they were really, they were losing weight and there were extended periods of low food intake and they were burning their own fat deposits. So ketones are, you know, ketones are, they're, they're, we use these dipsticks that are for humans. Uh, they put in the urine, they... They don't always are for all primates, though, and you have to be really kind of really bad, like really losing weight. So then a few years ago, I, with my colleague, my uh, former student, Melissa Emery Thompson, we developed, uh, helped work on 
developing um, uh, methods for C-peptide. And C-peptide is a, a molecule which is um, it's sort of a byproduct of, of pro-insulin, so it's related to insulin or, or correlated with insulin. And so that is actually a measure of kind of energy usage. Um, and it's a, it's a better measure in a lot of ways because you can measure like um, good condition as well as bad condition, whereas ketones is only if things are bad. And so um, that is becoming one of the, the kind of new methods which is which is great because you can just get the urine you don't have to have you know the detailed behavioral data of course it's nice to have that to also reinforce the hormonal data as well um, but that's one of the new, kind of new advances is the use of c-peptide um, and then the other, other method as well is cortisol uh, which is a more standard hormone but cortisol especially in orangutans is a good measure of um, of energy because cortisol is is excreted when I mean, it increases when you're under kind of metabolic stress. Now it could be because you don't have enough to eat. It also could be that you're stressed out because you have too many, you know, fights going on or something. Uh, but cortisol is another method as well. So that's so in terms of measuring calories, because we also want to do intake. What we do is we uh, collect very detailed data for every feeding bout. So everything they eat, you know, the number of fruits per minute, the size of the fruit. Um, the percentage eaten, and then we collect the fruits and we bring them back to our lab at the camp, and we um, we divide it up into the different parts, like the flesh of the fruit, let's say the skin, the seed, and then we we weigh and dry that, and then we can analyze um, back in our lab at at, uh, at Boston University or Harvard. We measure the um, the nutrients in the food, and so we can actually for every day we can t- say how many calories they consumed. And how much protein, how much fiber, how much carbohydrate, how much lipid. And so then we can get a pretty good um, estimate of calorie, of calorie intake and compare that with the calorie expenditure. So, yeah, that's another big part of my work. A lot, we do a lot of stuff with plants, really, you know, collecting all the plants and doing the, the processing. So. So what Dr. Nod is describing here has become a very successful example, perhaps a model, we might say, of what benefits can come out of integrating field observation and sample collection um, with very strong, a very strong benchwork component, and particularly in the areas of reproductive and nutritional uh, physiology, um, but also, as Dr. Nod mentioned towards the end there, uh, laboratory analysis of the nutritional environment in which the orangutans find themselves. And so just in the next segment of this interview, Dr. Nod's going to elaborate a little bit about some of the major findings of her work, extending from this um, this series of methodologies. Some of my major findings, well, one of them was just the, one of them, one of my first finding was that the um, the orangutans are paying this sort of big physiological cost for low food, that they were losing weight, um, that they, the females also were tracking energy balance, just like humans. So we have the females, um, you know, also have their, their ovarian hormones are, are very sort of closely correlated with, with changes in food. And when I first started my PhD, people thought, maybe that what was happening in humans was unique, that maybe other apes didn't, weren't like that. And so it tells us that this is a very old kind of adaptation in humans and more general um, than we had thought before. 
Um, and then I've also been doing a lot of work with males. So looking at male flange development and this sort of phenomenon of having two kinds of males, flanged and unflanged, they're sexually mature. So um, we do, you know, we collect testosterone and sort of looking at what's going on there. We discovered that um, a lot of the males at our site, they go through this, they can only maintain the flange state for a fairly brief time. And after that, they become what we call past prime, where they, they kind of, their flanges kind of shrivel up. So I've been looking at a lot of questions about what the evolution of flanging, the evolution of this phenomenon, and what, you know, theoretically why that exists. And then um, we also actually do work in zoos, too. We collaborate with zoos. And one of the things we found from the zoo data was that males that have current, let's say, let's say current males that have high testosterone, they actually develop flanges earlier than other males. And so some of it may also be kind of like a... A state trait, something that's about their early condition, also may influence how and you know how quickly they develop flanges and their adult testosterone levels. So, I think that's also part of the picture. So, you know, the male story is still ongoing. Trying really figuring out, you know, my bimatrism and orangutans, but we're trying to get at that through both you know captive and field data, measuring hormones. You know, it's hard to really follow these same individuals over a long time. And the males also are the ones that leave. And so these younger males, they will go, they will, you know, leave our study site and go someplace else. So it makes it kind of challenging then to, to study that. But, um, you know, that's one of the things that we've been doing as well. So essentially, we collect data on everything, you know, also looking at juvenile development, looking at, you know, um, because we have a very comprehensive data set, collecting you know all this behavioral data, the nutrition, the energy expenditure, the hormones that you know almost any question we can actually answer the data set. It's just having the time to, to do it, to, you know, to, to delve further into everything. So no doubt daunting and perhaps a little overwhelming to have access to so much data. But of course, this is a problem that all of us would readily accept, especially you know relative to the alternative of having too little, um, because these long term field sites and long-term data sets really allow us to start asking the more pertinent and most interesting questions, I think. And this is something that Dr. Knott is going to draw upon in the final segment of this interview when she starts to discuss her goals for the future of this project. Well, I think for the future, you know, we have, we'll have these, we have these long life histories of individuals. And so we'll be able to answer a lot of questions about, so we're on an adaptation and evolution by looking at, you know, these individuals over time. Um, one of the other things we're working on right now is this comparison between study sites and looking at female hormones and trying to understand why there's longer interbirth intervals in Sumatra compared to Borneo. And so we're doing this kind of, you know, inter-site comparison. So a lot of my, some of the future things I think will involve more kind of inter-site comparisons. So trying to understand why different sites are different. So I think that's kind of an exciting area and also a way to you know, collaborate with other colleagues, um, other places. Um, and, you know, looking at, you know, really... As we also develop more detailed methods, I think we can analyze things more, um, you know, in more, much more detail than we have in the past. I also would love to find some way that we can really track males over and females over a much bigger area because we really even don't know how big of an area they, they use. And some people um, are starting now to do or have done like overnight follows, and I have a student who's going to start doing that again soon as well and trying to track them, you know, when they leave our study area. So. You know, basically all orangutans, you know, use study areas that are bigger than 
these areas are bigger than anybody's study area, and so we really still don't even have an answer to that question. So that's another big question to address. So that was Dr. Cheryl Knott telling us about her work with Bornean orangutans. Now, just a reminder, you are listening to the Primate Cast in our coverage of the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held between August 11th and 16th of this year in Hanoi, Vietnam. In our next interview, the third of this installment, we're joined by Dr. Elisabetta Wieselbergi. She's research director in the Institute of Cognitive Sciences and Technology with the National Research Council of Italy, where she's based in Rome. Now, she's going to start this interview by first telling us about the foundations of her research. Yes, I do uh, several things at the same time. I work with the captive capuchin monkeys in my lab in Rome, but I also started something like 10 years ago, field research on capuchin monkeys in Brazil. Uh, This group of capuchin monkeys lives in a rather dry habitat between Cerrado and Caracinga, and they have a, a very special behavior because they habitually use stone tools to crack open nuts. And these palm nuts are sometimes very, very hard, like 20 times harder than walnuts. And these monkeys, we were able to weigh them in the field. And females are, adult females are about two kilos. Males are three kilos and a half. Sometimes the dominant male is over four kilos, but still they are very tiny individuals compared to us or chimpanzees. So Dr. Wieselbergi's research has really focused on this, this behavior, the cognitive capacities of capuchins and the emergence of this nutcracking behavior. Um, and for anybody who's, who has not yet seen it, you can probably quite easily find it on YouTube, um, Capuchin Nutcracking. It really is impressive to see these, as Dr. Wieselbergi mentioned, these small animals, relatively small animals, at least compared to us or chimpanzees who, who are regularly known to use tools to do things like this. Um, banging, uh, you know, their rocks on these nuts and, and actually successfully extracting um, the good stuff within. But as she's going to explain in the next segment of this interview, her research has proceeded far from myopically, and so she's getting into various ways to approach the study of this behavior um, in addition to looking at other things of the behavioral ecology of the animals in the wild. We studied these um, groups of capuchin monkeys um, in many different ways. We do f- systematic field observations of ecological conditions and behavior, uh, some hormonal studies, we, and we also do some experiments in the field. The experiments are mainly meant to better explore the cognitive capacities of these animals. And I must say that we are a team of people because since the very beginning, we collaborate with some uh, Brazilian researchers, especially uh, Professor Idzer. And uh, um, the project has started also with the um, researcher from the United States, especially Professor Dori Forghese from the University of Georgia. And we have been coordinating our work in such a way that data collected by one of us is useful to also interpret the data collected by others. And we have been uh, really successful in this uh, exchange of, uh, uh, of information. And uh, um, so we know 
the ecology of these animals, the behavior, and what they, how they master this incredible skill. So in the next segment of this interview, Dr. Visselberghi explains how this diverse approach to her research has really allowed her to understand more holistically the cognitive capacities of these animals and how that helps determine their behavior in the wild, particularly relating to this uh, use of stone tools. What we found uh, during these years, as I was telling by looking at different aspects of the capuchin's behavior, is that, for example, uh, their use of tools is not necessary for survival. You can survive very bad, very well in Fazenda Boavista even without using tools. So this is very difficult from the normal common view that tools are used because you need to access foods that are otherwise not accessible and this is done because you are hungry and you are, you know, so this, in fact, after we, um, Spagnoletti published a paper on this topic, uh, many other people looked at the same topic in chimpanzees and in orangs, and they also found that, in fact, tool use is not necessary for survival. We also looked at the complexity and the cognitive demands of the task and how the skill is acquired. And as far as I can tell, at the moment, there is no evidence that uh, chimpanzees that are the closest relatives to uh, the human beings do any better than capuchins. Of course, we have to do more research and really look in, in, um, uh, even in more depth at this issue. But at the moment, we really demonstrated these tiny monkeys that split from uh, the common lineage uh, something like 35, 40 million years ago, are as good as wild chimpanzees. In addition to her research, Dr. Visselbergi and her team have also taken steps toward conservation of capuchins in Brazil, as she explains here in the next segment of this interview. And I must also um, say that we recently, I mean, really last week it was ready, we made a scientific documentary, mainly by our selves, entitled The Birded Capuchin Monkeys of Fazenda Boavista, in which uh, we describe all aspects of their behavior, and uh, we also have some extra chapters that show how the work began many years ago, what kind of experiments we did, and the local community. What do they think about monkeys, and what can be done to preserve this uh, uh, population of wild bearded capuchins that is now surrounded by soja fields. So we are in really preoccupied for these monkeys and for our research as well. So once again, another primate population in peril, uh, living in an isolated forest fragment, obviously surrounded on all sides by, by various human activities. Um, seemingly no place to go. So in the, to end the interview, we just asked Dr. Veselbergi to leave us with a final message. Oh, if I have a message, is, uh, please help us to uh, preserve this population from extinction because this is a unique population and, um, and we invested so much in studying them that it would be a pity for everybody if they disappear. 
So that was Dr. Elisabetta Visoperki talking about her research and conservation efforts involving capuchins in Brazil and leaving us with a message that I think will resonate with all primatologists and conservationists um, as something that we, we, are, we, we need to continue to strive to do. So once again, you're listening to the PrimateCast's coverage of the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam between August 11th and 16th of this year. We're now going to be joined by Dr. James Hyam, Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology at New York University and a leading researcher in primate sexual selection and communication, with a specific focus on visual signaling in reproduction. We started the interview by asking him to tell us about his general research program. So the main objectives is really just to look at how sexual selection as a process has shaped reproductive strategies um, at, the, at the genetical, morphological, physiological and behavioural levels. And we're interested in everything from um, different sorts of competition, how that's mediated physiologically and morphologically, um, and mate choice signals and communication, mate attractiveness, and leading up ultimately to the effects of all of those selection pressures, not only in forming species and adaptation, but at a speciational level and leading to population level processes and forming new species. So here we asked Dr. Hyam to tell us a little bit about how he goes about conducting these studies. We use a lot of different methods from multiple disciplines. We, um, I have an endocrinology laboratory, um, so we collect feces and urine, sometimes blood, increasingly saliva, from which um, from from free-ranging animals usually sometimes from captive individuals but usually free-ranging animals including a lot of wild populations and we measure different steroid hormones so glucocorticoids and androgens estrogens progesterones um, but also other aspects of the endocrine system so urinary c-peptide of insulin for example as an energetic marker and also increasingly immunological markers um, we do some. We use genetics in a number of different ways. We use obviously phylogenies in our phylogenetic analyses, and they're derived from molecular data on species relationships. We use genetics for paternity analyses in our studies. We also use genetics. We, we have some recent studies using genetics to look at um, heritability and fitness of traits over time. So the relationship between trait variation and reproductive output over time. Uh, um, one of our study sites has a genetic parentage database and um, reproductive out- output database that goes back for decades. Um, we use techniques from ethology, um, such as behavioral observations. We use like, techniques from experimental psychology, such as presentations of images and stimuli, visual stimuli towards, um, towards individual animals. Um, in our analysis of signals and communication we use a lot of techniques a lot of computational techniques techniques from computer vision techniques from machine learning techniques computational photography techniques in order to analyze signals um, from digital images um, and analyze variation um, in those signals increasingly I'm looking at hard tissue morphology so uh, I have a new PhD student with a colleague of mine who's, who's looking at hard tissue signatures of different types of sexual selection so looking at things like 
not just bones but also muscle attachment areas on bones to look at you know kind of muscle muscle potential intra and inter individual variation in um, muscle size and um, things like this and um, yeah so lots of different approaches to try and tackle the questions I would say that our research isn't tied together by a species or it isn't tied together by a method it's tied together by a process um, sexual selection and its effects on reproduction and communicate uh, reproduction that includes a lot of communication so i think we can all get quite a clear sense of what dr hyam's group has been able to build uh, over the years through the diversity of their approaches converging on the central theme of sexual selection and communication but we asked dr hyam to maybe talk a little bit about the big picture aims of this work and even to run through a couple of current projects that he's he's got going what we're trying to do is put together a big comparative picture of um, the effects of sexual selection and how it produces and how these different mechanisms of sexual selection end up creating their own selection pressures that spiral to the point where you create a huge amount of diversity. And as a consequence of, the, of those selection pressures, we see the extraordinary diversity that you see among the primates. So we've published on you know, relationships between signals and behaviour and hormones and species such as crested macaques, rhesus macaques, drills, baboons. I mean, our current research, we just had um, some papers out about Gwen facial evolution, comparatively. And, and um, also we have a, a cool paper uh, with the postdoc Constance de Buc, his first author, um, showing heritability and relationships to fitness of rhesus macaque coloration so that it's heritable over time and increases your fitness um, in terms of your reproductive output, your attractiveness to opposite sex. Now, although he mentioned it only briefly just a moment ago, for those of you who have not yet seen it, do check out the paper called Character Displacement of Circopithecine Primate Visual Signals, which was published by Dr. Hyams Group in the journal Nature Communications this June. Now, this work addresses the great diversity that we see in the African forest Gwenin's um, physical appearance, specifically tackling the issue of visual signals and what role they might play in species recognition which has important consequences for speciation in this group of primates. And so he was here at IPS this week talking about that study. But more generally, Dr. Hyam's body of work and the diversity of approaches that have gone into it have really improved our understanding of the role of communication, specifically visual signaling in primate reproduction. So he's going to leave us here on the podcast with his take on the current state of primatology and promising avenues for future research. I think there's reasons that this is a very exciting time to be a primatologist. Um, one is the genomic coverage that we're getting is way better than you're getting in other taxa. We have you know, many, many species where we have whole genomes. Um, and you know that's really becoming a cheap thing that a lot of people are able to do. Um, secondly, I think that um, sensory ecology is really taking off because... We know so much about primate vision, say, and primate, um, the primate auditory system compared to what people know about a lot of other taxa. So when, we, when we're able to think about signals that primates are giving off, we can really model them in terms of primate perception in a way that it's quite hard to do for a lot of taxa because we don't really understand their, say, visual systems anywhere near as well as we understand the primate visual system, for example. Um, I also think that the physiology, we can do a lot 
more than a lot of taxa can do without having to trap our animals because you know a lot of taxa just give tiny little excretia and stuff that you'll never find and things whereas we we have these larger animals where we can regularly collect excretia and we can measure a lot of things in them um so i think that primatology has been troubled by the need for long-term monitoring and the small sample sizes and the absence of available methodologies. The methodologies are becoming available that will really help. Um, the, those long-running field sites that people have been running for 40 years plus in some cases have now created this backstory, this uh, of, of data through which everything can be looked at and interpreted and a lot of these things are really giving, really giving an insight into these longer-lived animals. And also I think that uh, yeah I, I guess I just think that a number of things are coming together that collectively mean that it's an optimistic time to be a primatologist compared to say 20 years ago that said of course all the primate populations are in much much worse state than they are 20 years ago and um, you know there's a real risk that the opportunity to study a lot of species will be lost. So that was Dr. James Hyam telling us about his work. Now in the final interview from this, the fourth installment of our coverage from the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam between August 11th and 16th, we are going to be joined by Dr. Joanna Setchell. Dr. Setchell is a reader in the Department of Anthropology at Durham University and a member of the Behavioral Ecology and Evolution Research Center um, she is also, in addition to her academic affiliations, editor-in-chief of the journal, the International Journal of Primatology, um, as well as vice president for research in the International Primatological Society. So to begin this interview, Dr. Setchell is going to talk quite broadly about her research, particularly as it has focused on a colony of mandrels uh, in Gabon, which she has been working with for almost two decades now. So I've been studying mandrels uh, in a semi-free-ranging colony in Gabon. For, since 1996, so that's 18 years now. And the advantage of the colony that we study is that you can see the animals every day and we know individual animals. So mandrels in the wild, live in, we know they live in very large groups um, and they're almost impossible to follow in the forest and no one has ever managed to habituate them so that you can follow them every day. Um, so the advantage of the colony that I study is that we can do that and so we can build up life history in information over time for the individuals we study so we can look at basic things like when females have babies um, and then we can use genetic analyses to find out who the father is and we can compare that with dominance rank in the females and in the males um, so we can look at reproductive scheduling and find out that females start to have babies at about four and then once they've started to have babies they continue to have one every year for the rest of their reproductive lives and they finish at around in their mid-twenties, whereas males are reproductively capable, so they can have a baby at four, they could sire a baby at four, uh, but they won't actually be large enough and physically dominant enough until they're about ten. And when they're ten, if they're lucky and they become dominant, then they might sire a lot of offspring, but they won't last very long in that position, and all the males are dead by twenty. Um, and whereas females seem to die of natural causes, males die because another male kills them, so they get into a fight and die of their wounds. So that's one of the things that we've been looking at. And the, 
advan- that illustrates the advantage of having the long-term data on a colony and being able to see the same animals day in, day out and watch the soap opera of what they get up to every day. So within that context, Dr. Setchell's main body of work has looked at sexual selection in primates uh, in these mandrels, and specifically the role of signals in sexual selection in primates. And so many of you may know the uh, various works that she has published regarding um, the, the visual signals that male mandrels in particular are producing. So they, obviously everybody knows the mandrels have these extremely and fantastically bright uh, red and sometimes blue faces. Um, and so Dr. Setchell's work has been investigating what contributes to the development of those features, those signals, and in turn, how they impact the reproductive success of males within the colony. But in this interview, uh, after just touching on that work very, very briefly at the beginning of the next segment, Dr. Setchell instead is going to be talking about a less well-known fact um, about signaling in mandrels and, and potentially other primates as well. And that relates to the importance of olfactory cues. For my PhD and then for the, my first couple of postdocs, I was interested in color mainly, and that's because mandrels are beautifully colorful. Um, but the other thing that mandrels do, which is extremely unusual in an old world monkey, is that they have a sternal gland, so a gland on their chest, and males rub it against trees, and they put a lot of energy into doing that. Um, and you can see, for a start, that they work hard to do that. And you can also sometimes see that they get infections. They rub their chest so hard against a tree that they get bits of tree in their chest and get infected. So they're clearly investing a lot in marking. So I became very interested in, in what it is that that mark tells another mandrel. So if a mandrel's wandering through the forest and smells an odour um, mark, what is it that that conveys? So we did some analyses. One of the great things about the surf mandrels is that we can catch them every year, so we can get samples of that odour. And we did some analyses in Italy, in Florence, um, looking at the chemicals that are in that odour. Um, and we discovered that, like every all other mammalian scent signals, they're very complicated, but you can pick up signals of sex, so you can tell the difference between male and female. You can pick up signals of age, so you can determine between, distinguish between an adolescent and an adult male. And particularly, you can find dominant rank. So you, an alpha male has a much more complex signal than an adolescent male. So all that's really important information if you're a mandrel. If you're walking through the forest and you smell another mandrel, you can determine whether it's male or female, whether it's high ranking and so on. So if you're a male mandrel, it's important to stay away from other males. If you're a female mandrel, you might want to approach a male if you want to mate, but you might want to stay away if you don't want to mate. So we did that, but the more interesting thing that we did was to compare genetics with the odour because we were interested in finding out how mandrels choose a mate. And one thing we, we know about how they choose a mate is that they choose animals' mates that are genetically dissimilar to themselves. Um, so all the work that I've done on colour signals is actually of no use there because colour signals don't tell you anything about genetic difference or similarity. But the advantage of odour is that if you compare your own odour with the odour of another animal, then you can, or you should be able to, determine how different those are. And if the odour signals genetics, then you can pick up genetic differences. And in fact, that does seem to be what mandrels do. 
So it might seem a little bit ironic here. On the one hand, you have this amazingly visual creature where it seems incredibly obvious that those um, features of the male mandrel's face must have a big impact on the, the the choice mate choice exhibited by females. But if you look at the body of Dr. Setchell's work or the collection of works, um, it becomes evident that perhaps this more recent work with olfaction may actually be better predictive of mate choice in female mandrels uh, related to the different smells um, produced by the males. And so that's quite a fascinating um, avenue for research. And so within primates more generally, there hasn't really been a lot done with olfaction and the importance of olfactory cues in signaling. And this is obviously because we, we as primates ourselves, we humans, um, our perceptual world seems to be dominated by what we see. Uh, and so we, ex we expect that extends to primates. And, and in general, there is probably a reduced reliance on olfaction, but that doesn't mean, as Dr. Seschel explains in this next segment, that it is unimportant. Um, I think it hasn't been looked at partly because we are visual animals ourselves. So the first thing we do is see an animal and we concentrate on what it looks like. Also because although we use olfaction as a species, we don't pay a lot of attention to it. So it tends to be unconscious. Um, so often we'll avoid something because it gives, it gives out an olfactory signal, but we're not really aware that that's what's going on. So we're not aware of olfaction in the same way we are aware of visual signals. And there is this, um, there are data to show that olfaction is reduced in old world monkeys and apes. But the fact it's reduced doesn't mean it's reduced to zero. So quite a lot of these studies are sold as though it's reduced to zero, but it's just reduced in relation to the highly olfactive species like mice, rodents, and so on. Um, so I think it, it's been understudied because we're not aware of it in our own species um, and because it's less important, but that doesn't mean it's not important. And just to drive home that point a little bit, uh, we got Dr. Setchell to go on and talk a little bit about the human literature in uh, how we might perceive odors of other individuals and how that might affect our um, perceptions of attractiveness of those other individuals. Yes, so the interesting thing about the human work is that it's actually done, it tends to be done by putting t-shirts on people and then taking the t-shirts off the people, putting them in a glass jar, and then asking other people to smell those t-shirts and say what they think of the smell. Um, and we, those experiments have detected, in some cases at least, the same sort of pattern, and that is that humans, humans don't like the smell of t-shirts anyway, but they dislike less the smell of t-shirts of genetically different people. Um, so that's an analogous perhaps to what the mandrels are doing. Um, but the interesting thing there is that we, we're actually just asking humans to rate the smell of a t-shirt, which is very different to the smell of an animal. And also this idea that humans, no humans like the smell of a t-shirt. So all the t-shirts are disliked, but you just find differences in how much they're disliked. Um, so the next question, I suppose, would be to find out how much mandrels like smell. It's quite a difficult thing to do. So I'm not sure if Dr. Setchell has any plans to run these t-shirt tests with the mandrels themselves, but in the last segment of this interview, she's just going to touch upon some of the future projects and directions of her research. A couple of future research directions. One is having looked at largely at male smell. Um, I'm very interested in female smell as well. Um, so for that, because the mandrels are quite difficult to study, we've moved to studying baboons in captivity because then you can actually get very close up to the animals and the animals are prepared, if you're lucky, to present to you so that you can collect an odour sample without having to anaesthetise an animal, which is a great advantage. So that's one future direction and that's a postdoc who's working on that. 
Um, and then I'm also interested in uh, I'm moving into teeth. So we're making a study of mandrel teeth. And again, this is related to the long-term nature of the study that we do, that eventually when the animals die, we can collect their, um, their remains, collect their skulls, and, and importantly, their teeth. And this links into the fact that teeth are the most common fossils. Um, so with extinct primates and extinct human ancestors, the only evidence we really have are uh, teeth. And so if we can look at the teeth of extant animals that we know, of whom we've got life history data, we can start to link those two together and then we can start to interpret these fossil teeth. So that was Dr. Joanna Setchell of Durham University telling us about her work into the role of olfaction in primate sexual selection. We'd like to thank all of our guests that appeared on this installment of the Primate Cast and invite you, the listener, to join us next time, which will be the fifth and final installment of our coverage of the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in August uh, this year in Hanoi, Vietnam. And we're going to include interviews with guests such as Cedric Seur, Odile Petit, Nicolas Claudier, uh, Jörg Massen, and finally... Joshua Plotnick. So, until next time... You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.ciasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.